Would you turn to Mark 14 and verse 21? As you know, we are going through the gospel of Mark verse by word, by verse, and we let the word of God bear its full authority upon our lives. It is not up to the preacher to dictate the topic or the subject at hand. It is up to then the word of God. All that I do is go through the passage, the scripture verse by verse. And so we find ourselves today in the gospel of Mark and verse 21. And we decided to park there and to exposit this one single verse since it is loaded with so much truth and such a great warning to all of us this morning. And the word of God reads, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This verse alone carries in it the embryo of the most richest Christian doctrines. This verse has in it a kernel, a seed, if you like, of the most profound theological subjects. For the Son of Man is to go. Here is a doctrine of incarnation. And here is a doctrine of propitiation and salvation. This is the gospel in nutshell. Just as it is written of him, uh, here we can talk about the doctrine of revelation and the inspiration of the scripture. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, here we, we find the doctrine of man, the depravity of man, or the justice of God and the judgment of God. Or you can look at both of these sentences together and then we see the, one of the greatest tensions in the scripture, two doctrines that seem to be polar opposite to us, but yet we see them here in this text side by side in perfect harmony. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Here is the sovereignty of God. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Here is the responsibility of man. How God ordained everything that come to pass. Even the worst kind of evil that is committed in this world, God already predetermined before the foundation of the world. And yet God is not the author of evil. Man is 100% responsible for his evil. And we will, we will touch on these subjects, but we must take a step back. Because as great and as deep and as rich these doctrines are, yet what leaps out of this passage and what carries much weight and what demands our attention this morning is this last phrase in this verse. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. 
there are only a few passages that cause our hearts to beat faster in fear and trembling, like this phrase. This is a judgment pronounced, a court ruling by the supreme judge of the universe. Can we think of a worse judgment upon anyone than to hear Jesus saying these words? This is a warning for everyone of us this morning to not walk in the path of Judas Iscariot, lest our faith becomes like his faith. And it begs us to ask this question. Why, Lord? Why? What is it that would make Jesus Christ utter such severe words and for the judge of the universe to render it better? For this man to not have been born. And we'll be spending most of today's message answering this question. But first things first. Let me start with giving you the outline for today's message. There are four points that we're going to be talking about. First, Jesus' reality. Second, God's sovereignty. Third, man's responsibility. And finally, sinner's calamity. Jesus' reality. In verse 21, we'll break it down. And the first part of it says, for the son of man. Stop right there. Now this, this term, Jesus loved to use it to refer to himself more than any other term. He used it to refer to his divine authority. Mark 2.10, Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus referred, used it to refer to his glorious return. Mark 13.26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He also used this term, the Son of Man, to refer to himself as a suffering servant. Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So this is one of the best terms that refer to Jesus Christ as the God-Man. 100% God. Because he alone is able to forgive sins. And yet 100% fully man because it is not God that gets killed. You can't kill God. Only the son of Adam that can rightly bear our sins and represent us before God and bleed and die for us as our sacrifice. And yet, only God that is mighty enough to pay the infinite penalty required for our sin. Only God that is powerful enough to absorb the infinite and righteous wrath against sinners and yet still survive. 
only God that could satisfy all that he himself demands. And Jesus Christ is this God-man, the Son of Man. Then it says, for the Son of Man is to go. Go where? That is to say, going to the cross. He will suffer physically. He will be tried, mocked, and spat upon. He will be whipped. He'll be hung on a Roman cross. He will bear the sin of the world. He will stand in a gap between God and man. He will be crushed by the Father. And he will rise again and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so he will justify all those that will come to him for refuge. Meaning he will freely accept every vile and wicked sinner that will believe in him. Jesus is this son of man. Meaning he's the perfect sacrifice who alone pleased the father by his perfect obedience and by his sacrificial death. For sinners, Of course, the Father is well pleased with the Son. Before eternity passed, of course, and even while He came down on earth, the Father is always pleased with the Son. Jesus obeyed His law entirely. He absorbed His wrath fully. He satisfied His justice completely. And so all who take Jesus as their substitute, apart from their good works, are freely and forever accepted by God. All because of and through Jesus Christ, who's their representative. Praise God for the Son of Man that is to go. He's already gone to the cross. Praise God for this Jesus. This is the reality of Christ. This is who He is and what He has done for us. That's number one, Jesus' reality. And, and Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross was not something that is unplanned. We come to now, second point, God's sovereignty. And we read, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written. Meaning God was not surprised about Jesus' death or how he died. God was never left scratching his head. Just as it is written, meaning exactly as it was written, precisely as it is written, to the, down to the very letter. It is not like God fluked it or that somehow when Jesus was glorified at the end, that Jesus got lucky. No. Here we come face to face with the sovereignty of God, just as it is written of him. That speaks of the Old Testament. And to be conservative, the least number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled directly were 300 prophecies. There's a scholar by the name of J. Barton found as Many as seven, 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And have a look 
Let me read to you some of those verses to see how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies to the very letter. I read, for example, Isaiah 53 verse 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Or for example, Psalm 21 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And there are many passages in the scripture that speak directly into Jesus as our sin bearer and how he died and rose again. And you know that they were written ranging from hundreds to thousands of years before his first coming. And some people, they deny the sovereignty of God. And they say, yes, yes, of course, it is written. It says it is written. But how is it written? And they say that God somehow looked through the corridor of time. He's got this crystal ball in him, that divine crystal ball. And he's looked into it and he found that Judas is betraying Jesus and how the Jews and the Romans are going to kill him and crucify him. And so what God did was quickly he penned it down in the Bible. To these people. In their worldview, God is not in charge over the evil of the world. And you ask him, well, who's in charge? Man. Man is in charge. And since evil is everywhere in the globe, and since evil has been there for thousands of years, so to those people, God has already lost control over his world for thousands of years. How absurd. In fact, how sad is this case? This is a hopeless view that leads nothing but to anxiety and depression. How do we respond to these critiques? How do we respond to them? Well, let me tell you something. I thank God for the gospel of Luke. You know why? Because in that same parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22, verse 22, let me read it to you. It doesn't say just as it is written. It says, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, ordained, planned by God. And Peter confirms this in Acts 2 verse 23. It says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, while God is not the author of evil, while God does not make man to be evil, yet God is a primary cause of all things. If you recall, he was the primary cause for Joseph to have been delivered as a slave to the Egyptians. Let me read to you what Joseph said to his brothers 
in Genesis 45 verse 5. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve my life. And the Bible tells us that it was God that hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God himself says that to Moses at the very start of that story in Exodus 4.21, where God says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There are many passages in the scripture that tells us that God is in charge of his world even over evil. Wicked man, no matter how wretched and cunning he is, he can't alter the plans of God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The evil of man, though coming out of his own evil heart, not God's, yet mysteriously. And though our brains cannot comprehend it, yet God sets this evil of man deliberately in order to fulfill God's holy decree. God is sovereign over every thought and desire of man, believers and unbelievers alike. Let's not forget, brothers and sisters, at the very least, it was God that was giving Judas strength to breathe and to walk, even while attempting to betray Jesus. And it was God that was giving the Roman soldiers strength and vitality while they were hammering away and nailing Jesus to the cross. Be a perfect peace, brothers and sisters. God is sovereign. You have a, an angry family member at home or a condemning boss at work or someone that is slandering your name, dragging your reputation on the, on the ground, throwing mud at you. Say with Joseph. You meant it for evil, but my sovereign God meant it for good, for good. Praise God that he's sovereign even over evil. Yet, at the same time, man is responsible. Look at Jesus' reality, God's sovereignty, and I want you to pay attention to how responsible, how much responsible man is. We're continuing on with our verse, and it says, but woe to that man. Now, which man? That's Judas, one of the 12 disciples, one of the Jesus' companions. Woe to Judas. Woe. Alas. 
old word, old English word. Disaster. What shocking and extreme pain awaiting this man. Woe to this man. What terrifying horror. What screaming and gnashing of teeth awaiting this man. So, in other words, if God is the primary cause of everything, and yes, he is, yet Judas is entirely responsible. He's totally accountable. Judas will stand before God on judgment day with his hands stained with blood, 100% culpable for his own actions. Yes, God is a great primary cause of all things. And yes, he used Judas' evil schemes as means to accomplish his holy purposes. But yet, Judas' evil thoughts are Judas' evil thoughts. And his sinful desires are his sinful desires. His actions are his own actions. And just like you and I, Judas is a free man. And his choices are his own. And therefore, because Judas died rejecting the free offer of the gospel, he's held accountable to every thought, desire, and deed. Just like Judas. So everyone who dies without Christ, On the judgment day, the sovereign God will assume his position as the judge and every unbeliever will be carrying all his hidden and visible sin. And they will be presented before the judge and God will look into their eyes and he will project all their sins. And he will say to every unbeliever, this was your life. And on that day of reckoning, man cannot hide behind God's sovereignty and say, you made me do it. No. Woe to this man. Meaning, if Jesus was not punished for it, the sinner will pay for it. And on that day, God will say, you own this. You're accountable for this. You're 100% responsible for what you have done. Because all of the wickedness that you have done have come out of the wickedness of your own heart, your wicked heart. Man is responsible. How much responsible? 100% responsible for all his sinful deeds. And here are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side. 
And finally, we come to sinners' calamity. Again, we read this small phrase, but woe to that man. Meaning judgment is set. The vengeance of God is burning hot and it's ready to unleash. The judge of this world, the line of Judah, this line is hungry for justice. His teeth are sharp sore. He's crouching, but woe to that man. Meaning the line, this line of Judah has locked his eyes on Judas and he's ready to pounce and tear Judas to bits. Judas rejected Christ and he sealed his fate. Then Jesus here pronounced divine judgment. This is Judas' calamity. And if this, if this was not harsh enough, Jesus continues on. And now we come to the most treading and most trembling phrase. And it says, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. What a terrifying statement. What is it about Judas perhaps closer to home? About some of us in this room that would make Judas wish he was never born. Well, let me give you two reasons why it would have been good for Judas. For that man, if he had not been born. Number one, he heard the gospel, the free gospel invitation, and he kicked it away. The more the unbeliever hears and still rejects Christ like Judas, the more he will wish he was never born. Why is that? Because the more one is exposed to the gospel and yet still reject it, the more his punishment will be. Matthew 10, 14, it says, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, Shake the dust off your feet. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in a day of judgment than for that city. Matthew eleven twenty three 23, it says, and you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained till this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, 
The people who died when God buried Sodom and Gomorrah under fire and brimstone, when those people will be raised and stand before the great white throne and people of some village or of some town somewhere that rejected the preaching of the gospel raised and they stand side by side the punishment that comes to those who rejected the gospel will be far more severe in comparison to the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah again Luke 12 verse 48 it says the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive, but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. The more one is exposed to the gospel, and continues to reject the invitation, the more his punishment will be. And Judas heard the gospel preached so many times. Judas saw multitudes throwing themselves upon Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Judas saw the smile in their faces. He heard their singing. Judas saw the worst and the most vile kind of sinners rejoicing because Jesus granted them forgiveness of sins. He saw Matthew, the tax collector, meaning a mafia gang member. He saw Matthew partying with Jesus. He saw Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. He's like a, a godfather, a drug leader. Drug lord or ringleader. He saw Zacchaeus jumping and dancing and clapping because Jesus told him salvation has come to his house. He saw prostitutes saved. Demon possessed set free. He saw the power of the gospel in action. He came so close to the kingdom of God. With his hands he touched the gates of heaven. His toes were just an inch away from the finishing line and yet he slid to the bottomless pit of hell. Judas heard the gospel. With his mind, he understood the gospel. He could recite it backwards. And with his eyes, he stared at the Jesus Christ who crowns the gospel. But his heart rejected it. And so now Jesus says it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. Would you turn there please? Hebrews 10 and verse 29 sums up the reason why Jesus said it would have been good for this man if he had not been born. Hebrews 10 verse 29 says, 
How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Who what? Has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. God offered you Jesus to save you. Yet to say no to Jesus, I love my life. I refuse to believe in you to save me. It is as though that you have tackled Jesus to the ground and with your feet full of dirt, you're stepping on his head. Jesus offers you to wash your sins in his blood. And as though Jesus says to you, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white and as snow. Yet because you're adamant not to trust in Jesus for your salvation, it means as though you're saying, Jesus, your blood is more filthy than my sin. I'm not washing my sin in your filthy blood. You're considering the blood of this covenant unclean. Oh, what an insult. What a slap in the face. And God says Jesus offers you your hand, his hand. And you just spat on your only hand that could save you. And so verse 30, Hebrews 10. You read in it and it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And verse 31, it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what does that all mean? If you hear the gospel and reject it, this is a vile crime and it will, it will be recorded against you. And it might go this way. God would say to the sinner on that day, you heard the gospel on Sunday morning. The Spirit of God brought understanding to your mind that you are a helpless sinner. You're in a desperate need for a Savior. And I offered you an invitation to come to this Savior. But you didn't flinch. Your heart did not move. You hardened your heart because you wanted to hug your sin to your own doom. You refused to look upon Jesus to forgive you. You rejected Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if that is true of anyone in this room, then this person has greater judgment than anyone who did not hear the gospel and died in his sin. So dear friend, if you're going to harden your heart and not let this truth affect you so that you would flee the wrath to come, if you're planning to die this way, listen to what I have to say. If you are intending to die as an unbeliever, it is better for you to die as an unbeliever in a far away, remote planet 
where you wouldn't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ than to die as an unbeliever while the invitation to come to Jesus is ringing in your ears. Why? Because the more you hear the gospel and yet reject the invitation, the greater the punishment will be. Would to God that everyone in this room come to Jesus now. So it wouldn't be said of him what is said of Judas. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The second reason why Jesus said this, and I want you to pay even closer attention, brothers, sisters, and everyone else in this room. It is because of the nature of the punishment to come. Because of the nature of the punishment. What is awaiting all those who die without Christ, whether they heard the gospel or not, is eternal hellfire. A real, permanent, tormenting place. Hell is as real as the chairs that we're sitting on. And hell is not just real, it is a tormenting place. Jesus described hell to be so terrifying, so cruciating. Let me give you some examples of what the scripture describes hell to be. It speaks of hell where worms do not die. Fire is not quenched, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It speaks of those that are in hell that will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Their smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and they will have no rest day and night. How terrifying is this place? Can we even imagine? The shocking horror, the anguish on the, in the faces of those who end up in hell. No wonder Jesus said it would have been good for that man or any man that would go to hell. If it had, it would have been better if he had not been born. See, the same thing can be said about everyone who would die without Christ. Sinners on that day who are not forgiven will be tossing in hell forever, turning from side to side in anguish, in screaming because of the hot flames of fire in hell. Fire is not quenched, meaning there is no air conditioner, no fans, no fridge to cool you down. In his furnace of hell, all there is to feel and to touch is hot lava. There is no corner that you would run to in order to find rest and cool yourself down. Every corner is hotter than the other corner. It is a tormenting place. And what adds more cruciating pain in hell is 
the conscience of unbelievers who die without Christ. Their own conscience will haunt him. As an unbeliever smoldering away, burning in hell, he will have flashback of all the opportunities he had to repent and put his trust in Christ, but rejected every single last one of them. An unbeliever who dies without Christ in hell will have his conscience reminding him and speaking to him into himself saying, Oh, how many times I heard the gospel preached and an invitation was given to me to trust in Christ. But in my arrogance, I laughed it off and I shrugged it away. I'm now in torment in hell. Oh, how many times I saw the tears of my mother crawling down her face. Oh, my father getting on his knees, pleading with me, begging me, urging me with all of his heart saying to me, Oh, son, repent now. Come to Jesus Christ now. He will accept you. Oh, my arrogance, my stubbornness of my own heart, I refused. And I kept delaying it and I kept deceiving myself, saying, maybe next year, maybe in six months' time. But look at me now, I'm languishing in hell. Yes. And even those false converted church members who have signed their covenant with a church, but yet not signed the covenant to trust in Jesus. Their conscience will also haunt. And they will say to themselves, my pastor preached a message on false conversion. And he urged me to examine whether I'm in the faith. But oh, my madness. Oh, my insanity. I drove both of my index fingers into my ears. In my foolishness, I said in my heart, oh, this warning can't be for me. Surely I'm a Christian. Oh, why, oh, why have I not examined my faith? Why, oh, why have I not searched my heart to see if I'm truly saved? And in hell, many, many multitudes of sinners will recall Romans 10 verse 8. You know this verse. Let me read it to you. The word is near in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise God for this word. 
An unbeliever in hell would say, Oh, how the word was so ever near to my mouth. In fact, it is in my mouth and in my heart. Why did I not exercise trust in Christ? Why did I not give him my life? And so, in the deep darkness of hell, so dark it can be felt, and in the midst of shrieking and screaming, what Jesus said about Judas will haunt every unbeliever. And he would say to himself, Oh, it would have been good for me if I had not been born. Oh, how I wish I was not alive, never came into existence. Oh, cursed is the day I came into this world. Cursed is my birthday. And cursed is every year when I celebrated my birthday. Because to be in hell, to be in a tormenting place, in hell forever. Every last unbeliever in that place would say, it would have been better for me if I was not born. What does that all mean? It means if you will never be born again, in hell you will forever wish that you were never born. Oh, how we all ought to search our hearts this morning. Am I truly saved? Am I born again? Has Jesus forgiven my sins? Oh, how we all ought to come to this place of trusting Jesus Christ for salvation. I want to tell you one more time that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection Seated at the right hand of the Father means that now the gates of heaven are swung open. And through the preaching of his word, even this morning, he's stretching his hand to you who are not seeking him. And even to those who have rejected him thousands of times. And Jesus is offering an invitation to everyone this morning, black and white, old and young, and in between, healthy and unhealthy, 
worst kind of sinners and the most prideful, righteous sinners. And God bids you now to come to Jesus Christ. Oh, how you know now that you are in a desperate need for him to save you. You know that. It is in your heart now. You are convinced at least mentally of your desperate need for Jesus to save you. And by the proclamation of his word this morning, he's calling upon you and inviting you and urging you to come. Stop this stubbornness. I plead with you. Trust in Jesus. Give him all your sins. Don't let your sin to be an excuse why you don't come to Christ. Let it be the reason why you need to come to Jesus. Come to him with your sins, friends. Come to him. Even if you claim to be a Christian for so long and now you know that you're not, come to him with your sins. Hand over. Give up this weapon of self-righteousness that makes you think you don't need him. You need him. Wash your sins in his blood. Flee to Jesus. Hide in his wound. He will accept you. He will cleanse you. He will change you. Oh, why or why would you reject this invitation? Why? Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he will he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Then it says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please, friend, take refuge in Jesus. May none of us Leave this room unconverted, unsaved. May God rattle you and shake you this morning. May he bring to your mind some sanity and wisdom to understand the consequence of rejecting Christ. It is so severe and it is so harsh that you wouldn't wish even in your worst enemy. Please. Child, teenager, young man, adult, old man, come to Jesus now. Give him your life now. You will not regret it. And brothers and sisters, just a call to all of us. Now that we know how severe and tormenting this place is, how can we just shake it off? How can we not go into the highways and the byways and call every sinner to come to Christ for salvation? Would to God that we would have parents, faithful parents that would plead for their children to come to saving faith. Would to God that we have fathers and mothers that would not give thousands of excuses as to why they're not sharing the gospel with their children. 
but to be committed every day to reach out to them. Surely you don't want what was said about Jesus to be said about your son. You may hug him as much as you like. You may want to protect him as much as you want from COVID or any kind of virus. But how in the world are you ever going to protect him from the wrath to come? May we be faithful parents and continue to share the gospel with our children. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what a warning. What an indictment. We pray, Lord, that as severe as this is, and though it may arouse certain emotions in us that we do not desire for these emotions to be aroused, but this is your word. And you never called us to feel good about ourselves. And you called us to live for you and to carry our cross and to follow you, Lord, even all the way to our own death. Father God, we pray that these words would not be taken away by the evil one. Oh, Lord, would we love for you this morning to reach out to those among us who are not saved and that you would save them this morning. And for us who are saved to be faithful stewards of the gospel and to share this gospel with the closest family members, uh, those that are loved among us, and, and to even go beyond that and to every man and every woman that we see on the streets. Let us be radical for Jesus' sake. In Jesus' name, amen.